The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. Today is the second in the message series, Unscrooge, Living So You Don't Have the Top Five Regrets of the Dying. The second regret, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Two different sources for this message series. One, a book of the same title, Top Five Regrets of the Dying, written last year, rather popular. First title, first source, Ebenezer Scrooge. From Dickens' wonderful Christmas carol. Dickens, Unitarian, by the way, who gave us, offered to us, so many of the wholesome qualities of this season, really reduced to the message, the core message, that conversion by kindness is desirable and possible. So last week's message, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself and not according to the expectations of other people, when I preach that message, you know, it's, I, I like the message. The, the regret, though, didn't really hit home with me. A decade ago, it would have. But now in my life, living my calling in ways both healthy and challenging, and living a sober life, fortunately, I don't really have that first regret active in my life right now. But today, my thought was, minister, heal thyself. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I hope I'm not working on making that a regret when I come to the end of my life. So I say this without boasting, and folks, please hear me, especially those of you in leadership with me, I say this without complaining as well. I routinely work 55 60, 65 hours, often more, here at Wellsprings, in a calling that I love and with people who I care about. And yet, (laughs) I have to be aware that I might be working on a regret. The book that this comes from, the uh, practitioner, the, the nurse, Bronnie Ware, the hospice nurse, who observed this and these five regrets among her patients, said that particularly every male dying patient she ever had in hospice gave voice to this regret as they were coming to the end of their lives, especially if they were of a certain age. Women also, she heard, give voice to this, but she said all the men did. I saw, I think, a representation of this a number of years ago when I was doing ministry, my first ministry in South Florida, and I lived in a high-rise on the beach. And it was about half young professionals like myself and half retired elderly people. And there were two distinct groupings of those elderly people. One, a variety and collection of women. Down by the pool, six, eight, ten of them gathering with each other, playing canasta or bridge and talking about their lives, talking about their children, talking about their grandchildren. And then on the other side, individual, solitary men, not in groups, not talking with friends. I wonder if perhaps some of these men were coming to recognize the seeds of the regret that it were sown many years ago and that maybe they were wondering, did I work too hard if this is what I has left? And by the way, this obviously is not just for men. 
perhaps men of a certain age. I remember a colleague of mine, very good friend. She's an excellent minister. One of her first positions was on the staff of a large, progressive, vibrant congregation in Southern California. And it nearly destroyed her marriage and her family. Because their norm was that they'd just been living out for decades. If you worked at that church, you worked six days a week, 12 hours a day. That was their expectation. And so it's important for all of us to recognize in our families, in our working lives, how it affects those people we are connected with, disconnected from, not to place all of our self-worth eggs in the one employment basket. This is sometimes what's called the quest for this illusory animal. I think it's illusory to think of this way. It's, It's like a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch or a Loch Ness Monster. This thing called perfect work-life balance. As if we can get there and achieve this perfect work-life balance. It doesn't exist for so many of us. When I think of work-life balance, I want to physically represent that. So maybe I think of something like this. And yes, I know those of you who do yoga say, you know, the, the, the foot should be up here. Yeah. But, you know, I can balance better down here, so I'm going to keep it down here. And you might be saying, wow, look, he can talk and balance at the same time. A little shaky, a little shaky perhaps, but he's holding it. His, he's got good balance. But here's the thing. You're thinking of my balance, perhaps, and you're not thinking of the ground underneath me. But what would it look like if I was trying to balance on this kind of ground? <laughs> be a lot harder. You wouldn't just be focused on the individual balance. I don't think it makes sense when we struggle with questions over work-life balance to think about it solely as an individual thing. Because in fact, it may feel for many of us that the ground underneath us when it comes to our working life actually looks a lot more like this. That the ground is tilted sometimes against us. And it is not easy to keep a balanced graceful pose. In fact, it is silly to think of balance in isolation from the ground. The ground of our working lives has shifted and continues to shift for so many of us. We hear of it, we read of it in stories about greater competition in so many of the fields in which many of us work. We hear about it and people who have to do their jobs with fewer resources but the same expectations. We hear about it in those studies that show that productivity is rising much faster than employment rates are rising. And I hear it in your stories as well. I see it in your bodies. I see it in your tiredness. I see it in your families and our families. I see the ways in which so much of our busyness and our overwork leads to disconnection, if not at times, despair. Sometimes I wonder that you can tell the stories of an age by knowing their symbols. And so I'd pick as two of our symbols these two characters here. Power up. Glug, 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 glug. Power down. Pop. 
By the way, there's nothing wrong with Ambien, nothing wrong with Starbucks. It's just recognizing how ubiquitous these are all around us. I got another reminder of this this past week, particularly a body image about being out of balance, and it was this. It was this medication. Treat frequent heartburn, exclamation point. Maybe if it's really frequent, we ought to be looking at something else. And this is an ad with uh, um, Larry the Cable Guy. Not a comedian I like all that much. Uh, But the basic thing is, we're Americans. No one can tell us what not to eat. Go on eating that hot sauce. Go on eating that barbecue. Go on eating those sweets. You know what? You've always got Prilosec to help. Just keep doing it even if the body is saying no. (laughs) Masking symptoms for deeper root causes of being out of balance. One of the most healing things in my life has been maintaining a mindfulness practice and teaching mindfulness and leading all of us, many of us, to pay attention to the body and not skip over it, not just to disregard it. You might know of a, a famous, and I use famous in air quotes, famous philosopher, Rene Descartes. Descartes is known for, I think, therefore I am. Folks, I do not overstate it when I say this is one of the worst ideas the world has ever had. Because we are, and then we have thoughts. See, sometimes what's the, the Cartesian teaching is called the Cartesian dualism. It splits us body from mind, spirit from matter. It robs from us this that we work with here that we call soul. Soul is all the pieces of us brought together, treated as a whole. When we split when we disconnect from the body, it makes it very hard to connect with other bodies in loving, wholesome, caring, compassionate ways. We are a society overworked, over busy, overstressed, and it shows up first and foremost in our bodies. So one of the first steps of healing is to be able to recognize that we have bodies in the first place. As someone said to me at the end of a recent mindfulness retreat, I came in here at the beginning of the day. My intention was to find joy in the moment, to be joyful in the moment. And then by the end of the day, they said, before I could ever hope to be joyful in the moment, I have to actually know this is the moment. (laughs) At that point, I like wanted to work done here. (laughs) That is an incredible learning just to connect to how we are and to remember this body and the way this body connects to other bodies. Throughout this series, as I mentioned, I'm going to be taking little bits of uh, a Christmas carol from Ebenezer Scrooge, who is a perfectly awful representation of each of these top five regrets of the dying. The story of a Christmas carol is him recognizing he has a second chance before he dies that he doesn't have to die with these regrets. So this is one part of the story I'm going to share with you. It's quite well known. This is when his old business partner, Jacob Marley, 
appears to him as the first apparition saying, you are going to be visited by these three spirits, ghosts of Christmas, past, present, future. And Jacob Marley, wrapped in chains, his jaw literally falling off, scares the living daylights out of Ebenezer Scrooge. And this is their interaction. Jacob, Scrooge said imploringly, old Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give, the ghost replied, and I could not tell you about it regardless. See, my spirit never walked out beyond our counting house. In life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, now scrambling to apply that logic to himself. Business? cried the ghost, wringing his hands. Humanity should have been my business. The common welfare should have been my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence, all were truly my business. But the dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in what should have been the comprehensive ocean of my business. This was a risk in Ebenezer Scrooge's day, and it's certainly a risk in our day for so many of us, as busy as we are, as overworked, as overscheduled. I saw someone retweet someone else's thought, I can't remember who it was, on uh, Twitter, and they said maybe the first step in all this is stopping using our busyness as a badge of honor. Just first recognizing this is nothing to be proud of. And by the way, I am very much preaching to myself right now. Our busyness, our scheduledness, it can crowd out so many of the other concerns, connections, possibilities for true human thriving. And yes, there are individual steps that we can take. There's a guy named Matt Steele who is a a tech entrepreneur and he works 70, 80 hours a week until he started recognizing that in his 30s while he was feeling all this stress, some of the things we just talked about that medicines were intended to treat. He also recognized patches of his hair were falling out as well too. His body was telling him, wake up, this is not sustainable. And so he wrote a little web manifesto, maybe a thousand words, beautiful, chock full of wisdom called The Abundance of Slowness reclaiming the abundance of slowness. He said, some of the steps we can take are this, have a clear boundary with those we work with, no matter how important our work is or we think it is. Most importantly, we need to have a clear boundary with this. Meet my most active addiction. My wife reflects it back to me all the time. You're doing it again. You're doing it again. You're doing it again, and I know it. It's an addiction. I go to it so quickly, reflexively, unconsciously, mindlessly. And it keeps me from connecting in other ways. The writer also says, here's something you can do. Wherever you work, wherever your business is going on, leave it to have lunch. Go outside, and even if you don't want to hug a tree, see a tree. (laughs) Get connected to nature. And then one more thing that I put into slightly different words, what Kierkegaard said. Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher and theologian, 
writing around the same time that Dickens was. This fellow says, you know, learn to focus. Kierkegaard put it this way. The ability to will one thing while we're doing it is healing. In other words, we should all, st- all of us stop multitasking. <laughs> dividing our lives, dividing ourselves, dividing our senses. And by the way, not being terribly effective either for that matter but dividing ourselves and disconnecting because we do not or will not give ourselves the presence of mind and of heart to will one thing while we are doing it. In the midst of this holiday season as well, there are choices that we can make, individual choices we can make to engage our values. I know this is tough, very difficult. I've heard from many of you who are parents of children. And always the quest for more and best and the most recent toys. And certainly I don't judge this. I think this is something in which mindfulness, not moralism, can help us make good decisions. And by the way, I can't stand the progressive thing that happens all the time. And I hear and it's rife with judgment. My gift is more fair trade than yours. My gift is more organic than yours. It's just a form of judgment that builds shame. And still, there is space before we purchase something, before we engage the market as consumers in which we can ask, is the company, the business that we're engaging with, is it an opportunity to manifest our values in the world? We won't always make the perfect choice because there isn't any perfect choice, but at least we can create the space to make that choice in the first place and not just mindlessly purchase another thing. But as I said before, this question of maintaining some kind of balance between our ideals, our hearts, our connection, not dividing ourselves, it's not just individual alone. There are systemic factors at play. There are so many factors in our world, in our working lives that are tipping the floor and altering the ground of being upon which we stand. And this brings me to someone who I think I've quoted four times in the last six months. And if you had told me a year ago that I would be quoting this person more frequently than any other author or any other writer, any other thinker, I would have told you you were nuts. This is the fourth time in the last six months that I'm quoting Pope Francis. He is speaking to something real in our midst. His most recent teaching on our economic relationships. Now, some have dismissed him just out of hand as Marxist, as if that's just something by saying it means we don't listen to it. And by the way, there are very few actual Marxists left. Most of them are in academic departments. (laughs) It doesn't mean they shouldn't be listened to. It just means that there aren't that many Marxists out there. And by the way, Pope Francis is not one of them. By dismissing him as Marxist, it actually means we don't have to listen to his critique because his critique is in many ways more radical and non-materialistic. It is this, that our markets, our ways of organizing our economic matters are first and foremost human structures. And whenever we make a model, a market, any form of human communication, or commerce, or connection, more important than the end of human connection, we have folks build ourselves an idol. 
and an idol will never serve us and make us whole. And so this is what the Pope was talking about in this current economy in which he said so many human beings are themselves considered consumer goods to be used and then discarded. He is talking about an economic system that does not recognize our innate need for our humanity and for humane values. This draws me back to one of my favorite teachers who, when I was completely irreligious as an 18-year-old secular Jew in a secular college, and I read Martin Buber for the first time. Martin Buber, that beautiful, I mean, he had a beard that went down the floor. He looked like a Jewish contemplative of the 1910s. Martin Buber, who wrote about that there are two fundamentally different ways of relating to our world and to each other and to our own lives. One that he called I-it. I, it means I treat you and very often myself as an it, as a thing, as an object to be manipulated to my own ends of pleasure or use and then very often discarded afterward. But Buber said there is a whole other way of learning to relate to this life that he called I, thou, which is learning to treat others and ourselves as ends in themselves recognizing that the glory of what he understood to be the divine was most honored by recognizing the infinite worth and value of each of our lives. To know that we are not just machines to be manipulated for pleasure, to be bought, sold, commercialized. By the way, all that sci-fi stuff, the Terminator stuff about machines taking over the world, it's easy to focus on that when in fact it's already here. They've got us. They've got me. (laughs) This is, I think, why so many of us were alarmed or took notice when this past Thanksgiving something seemed to shift and when that day of Black Friday just (laughs) bled even more and more into Thanksgiving itself. There was a concern, yes, about justice there, about low-wage workers who had no say, perhaps, in the hours that they were going to work. That is a real concern. And in fact, there's many of us who have worked for a long time on Thanksgiving. I work on Thanksgiving. My phone is on on Thanksgiving. I have refielded calls from people on Thanksgiving. And that's as it should be. My wife is in television news. She works on Thanksgiving. We understand it. This has been going on for a long time. It's just that the trend seems more and more that we refuse to create space for Sabbath, for Sabbath experience. From stepping away from our work, no matter how important and vital our work might be, so that we can put our work into proper perspective and not make an idol of it or an idol of ourselves. But unfortunately, the growth seems to be going in the opposite way. Less and less holy spaces, less and less holy days, less and less Sabbath less and less opportunity to rest. And our bodies tell the tales of these things and in painful ways. So I want to return at the end here to my calling and to the body and to reground there, to reclaim the holiness of the body 
and of this work. And when I say this work, I don't mean professional ministry. I mean the work of caring and connection. And so I, I want to say one thing that I don't think is going to be terribly controversial. You all see me. I express my gender in particularly traditional ways. And so I can say uncontroversially that I will never have the physical experience of breastfeeding. We all can identify with that. I am not going to have the physical experience of breastfeeding. Just understand that for a moment because I'm going to come back around to it. And by the way, maybe you've heard those stories or maybe this has happened to you. The stories of women in public places who breastfeed and are told, shamed, we cannot do that here. And yet maybe right next to them there is a picture of human flesh manipulated and contorted in all kinds of ways. We're not scared of flesh. We're scared of intimacy. And when I say intimacy, I'm talking non-sexual intimacy. I'm talking about the intimacy of connection that gives life. Terrified, so many of us are. Our society is. We shame it, blame it, hide it. Real intimacy. When exploitative flesh sharing, it's all over the place. So let's return to that. That assumption, I will never breastfeed. But the closest... I believe I have ever come or will ever come is in one of the most holy and simple parts of my work. And it's expressed in this. If you've been in a hospital recently, you might know what this is. A little cup of ice and a little spoon. I've had the opportunity to do this a few times in the last couple of years. It is one of the most intimate acts to share with another human being. To feed them one after another after another, sometimes over the space of an hour, an ice chip, and quench their need for water. It reminds me of some of Jesus' last words before he died. I thirst. We all thirst. Thirst for wholeness. Thirst for something which no amount of work, no matter how important it is, can ever give us. Thirst for communion. That's really what I was doing. <laughs> I was giving communion, offering connection and intimacy. It's one of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings. The thirst for fulfillment. And none of our addictions, none of our compulsions, none of our over-busyness, none of our overwork will ever help to fill those God-shaped holes. That thirst for fulfillment. Maybe just take this time, this season, to get back in touch with just what Jesus said. To recognize the shapes of your thirst for wholeness and fulfillment. If we do that, if all of us do that, we will be contributing to the healing of our world and the capacity for connection in our world and the need that very few of us allow ourselves. That we will rest in this dark season. Give our bodies, our minds, our hearts and other bodies, minds and hearts a break. 
that we will rest in the dark and that we will rest in communion and that we might rest in intimacy and that our lives may most profoundly rest in the grace that holds all of us. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Divine spark and spirits echoing through our hands, our hearts, our lives this very day, this very moment, this very breath. May we recognize the shape of the gra- excuse me, the shape of the ground underneath us. May we recognize the ways in which this ground may feel tilted against us and we feel perhaps at times as if we are just holding on, just trying not to fall. May we know that our work, however good and noble it is, may we know our effort, however good and noble it is, may we know our striving, however good and noble it is, will never be as good or noble as these could be unless we ground ourselves in that deeper awareness of grace, belonging, connection, breath that we did not make, cannot control. May we invite ourselves in this season to have that larger awareness of the grace that holds us all. Because it is from that place that our work can be diligent. Because it is to that place that all our diligent work honors and returns. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.